Steve Keen, thank you very much for joining us on Scotonomics. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Um, the first place I wanted to start was I've listened and watched you on various podcasts this year, and one of the most striking things um, from your interviews is that often uh, when you give an answer, the hosts seem baffled at your response. Now, I mean, you're debunking modern-day economics, giving really good examples. It's all really clear and concise, but it just seems fundamentally different, uh, sorry, fundamentally difficult for even very intelligent people to grasp some of the things that you're saying. So firstly, um, I wondered, how do you cope with this, considering you've had this for like probably near on five decades? And then secondly, why is it so difficult for people to understand the way that you're looking at economics? Yeah. Um, it's, it is difficult to cope with because um, my, my approach to economics becomes second nature to me now. And, uh, and I'm lying it out with a, using a set of logical foundations for it. And I've built the software to it, be able to express those foundations clearly. And it's, you know, so it, it's become you know, my way of life is thinking that way. And then I'll strike people and then their mind is caught up with a, with a, a, a virus, an intellectual virus that redirects their thinking in one direction or another. And that applies if I'm talking to a Marxist, they can't help going back to the labor theory of value. If I'm talking to a near, somebody who's been trained in conventional economics, they can't help going back to supply and demand. And they try to put everything inside those existing mental frameworks that I know are both wrong. And, and so that's, that's the real challenge for me. And a large part of it is often trying to put uh, my understanding in their framework. Um, and I've done that just recently when I was talking about how the uh, mainstream thinks that a government deficit is a bad idea because it drives up interest rates. When you look at their model, uh, and that's the you know, intersecting supply and demand stuff, what it shows is the government coming into the market for bonds is adding to the demand for bonds, and you've got a rising supply, uh, demand for money, and you've got a rising supply curve. You've got to offer a higher interest rate for people to be willing to offer more money. So if you add the demand, you drive up the interest rate, and then the government might get its spending done, but that higher interest rate crowds out the private sector. And, and that's literally, I'm pretty much quoting MAMQ on that front. That's what anybody who's done a you know, quality, PPE course somewhere and therefore is potential prime minister, um, that's what they believe. That's, they, that's what their mental framework is. Well, I go through my own model and I show using the, the uh, double-entry bookkeeping system that I do and so on, that the government deficit actually adds to the supply of money. And then I can come back to the way they think now and say, well, it's not the demand curve that's shifted because of the deficit, it's the supply curve and it's shifted out. So the deficit is, according to your model, will reduce interest rates and increase private sector activity. Um, so it, it's, I've got to find a way can, that I can express it, but I want them to get away from their way of thinking because the, the problem from their point of view is how do they know whether to put this on the demand curve or the supply curve? And that then is the, the, all the ancillary assumptions they have. It isn't just this you know, one little intersecting supply and demand curve for money. They've got their model about how money is created, which is the government can control the money supply. Uh, they've got their arguments leaving banks out of the whole system. You've got an entire forest of assumptions. And once you knock any one of them down, the whole forest collapses. It's a house of cards more than a forest. Um, so it's it's a real, real challenge. And, and people don't want to have their mental framework destroyed. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if this will flatter you greatly or not, but I, I get the same response when I watch uh, Noam Chomsky speaking to people, mm -hmm. that the answers that he gives them are just so far out of, you know, to use that phrase, that kind of overt in a window. It, it's almost unbelievable and I know that you're experiencing that because we've had this way of being taught economics for you know as long as you've been in economics it must be really yeah. difficult to feel like you're continually having the same argument again and part of that is the reason that we're running the Scotonomics show is to say to yeah. people that things are very different from what you're taught but why do you think this way of seeing the world is so ingrained into the vast majority of the the global north a uh, combination of reasons. I, I think it comes down to the fact that humans in general uh, always have some sense of a, of a utopia. Uh, where uh, Humans differ from any other animal that we know of by being able to share beliefs. Okay? 
Uh, so far as we know, spiders don't share beliefs. You know, they, they build webs. Uh, and, and, and so the fact we can share beliefs is, uh, and we have the intelligence to act on those beliefs, we then act on them collectively and we can achieve things that we could never do individually. So that's a major part of the defining feature of humanity. Um, and it, it seems that we always have some sense of utopia. So our vision of heaven and hell, you know, um, uh, the, 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 everything from the Greek gods, all the sort of stuff forward, there's a vision of some sense of utopia. And what the neoclassical model gives you is a model of capitalism as a utopia. Uh, you have a world in which there's no power. We have perfect information and perfect competition, not pejorative words at all, you know, not at all, perfect, you know, it's perfect. Isn't that good? Um, and so this perfect world uh, with perfect information, no power uh, and no need for coercion because the market does everything and everybody gets their just reward. You receive your marginal product. Okay, so all this stuff is a it is it is a description of a, a form of mathematical utopia, and I think that's one reason it so grabs hold of people's minds so strongly. It isn't just as people often say that neoclassical theory supports the ruling class. Okay, it's it's it because it, that implies people are being paid to argue this stuff, and I've, having spent fifty years working with neoclassical economists, they genuinely believe this is an accurate model of the world. You know, you've got to make some simplifying assumptions, they'll say, but they believe it's an accurate model. Uh, and it is a model of perfection. And they are therefore trying to make the world a better place. And, and this is so deeply ingrained that we don't realise it's actually a completely distorted description of the real world. And when you follow their rules, uh, you end up destroying the complex social system on which we yeah, live. Um... So, moving on to climate change, mm -hmm. um, you said a really uh, succinct thing uh, in one of your podcasts, which was, if um, uh, if the pandemic is a dress rehearsal for the climate crisis, then the human race has failed the audition. And yeah. I, I, I fear that we are uh, failing the audition very much. So, um, the IPCC report has just come out. It has given humanity a code red. What do we need to do, Steve? What do we need to do? Well, that, that again comes down to partly, uh, I mean, I'm not going to blame mainstream economics completely here or even the coal interest. Again, it comes down to humanity. Uh, we, uh, we, our social systems are built on a belief structure and a, and, and a technology as well, the social structure. And when we have a successful system and that, that, it, and that it's dominant and growing like the Roman Empire at some point or, you know, the... Uh, the empire, the, the Teotihuacans in Mexico and so on, um, there are strong interests that want to maintain that system, even if some people can say that it's unsustainable in various ways. And it seems in humanity, we, we, we have never said, oh dear, if we keep on doing this, we're going to destroy the foundations of our society. Let's change direction and to preserve our society. Instead, they've preserved, pushed it to the, to the point past the breaking point, and then it collapses and then, you know, the society either disappears. So Egypt is now, you know, a place you go as a tourist to take photographs of, of monuments. You no longer, you don't go to pay tribute to the pharaoh. Um, and and we, get, we get a breakdown and a movement to a new location. So this is something we've always done. And, and now we're doing it in a context of where there is no, we can't, like we could move out of Egypt into um, our Palestine uh, 4,000 years ago. We can't move, well, not, we can't move from Earth to Mars as easily as, as you could escape from the collapse of Egypt to somewhere else in the, on the, around the Mediterranean. So uh, that is our, our problem. And as I said, it's not just capitalism, not just mainstream economics. Having said that, mainstream economics has played a huge role in saying this is trivial, don't worry about it. And, and consequently, if we'd had a more realistic economics, it's quite possible we could have said 200 years ago, if we keep on doing this, we're going to have problems. And a hundred years ago, they realised, well, we really have to speed up, uh, you know, uh, changing our energy source, and we also need to constrain our population, constrain inequality. We could have made those decisions with a more realistic model of how our society functions. Uh, but the, it, so the role I've seen that neoclassical economics has played there is utterly destructive because it's continued encouraging us to push this exponential process on a finite planet and we're now living with a collision between an exponential process 
and a, a horizontal line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you'll know in Scotland that we are hosting the COP26 um, mm. in November. And, uh, you know, I'm, you, you also know that I'm involved in a, a court case yeah. against the Oil and Gas Authority as well. So there's a disconnect between what our supposed ambitions are and what's actually happening, which is mm. the UK government are giving out licenses and permitting people to carry on drilling North Sea uh, oil out of the North Sea, which obviously is going to just um, contribute to the climate crisis massively. Um, so, but the, the other thing that Scotland is very keen on doing is um, being a world leader in renewables. Now, I was mm. listening to your interview, interview with Simon Michel, um, yeah. and he's very knowledgeable about really what the realistic um, uh, targets of that would be, because obviously we're limited in resources. And a couple of things he pointed out are um, neodymium and copper. Mm -hmm. They're massively used within uh, wind turbines. And there are lots of other things, uh, minerals that just are going to run out or are going to be so inaccessible, it's just not going to be practical to try and get them. So uh, how can we really meet that ambition, I wonder? And that's my, I mean, I'm like, I've, I'm, I know that I'm an economist, unlike most economists who think they're also meteorologists, uh, uh, you know, paleontologists, weather forecasters, et cetera, et cetera, and they can use their own silly models anywhere on the planet. Um, so I'm, I'm going with my engineers tell me, and and, and, and so that that's and Simon is probably the person who's got the, the the strongest handle on the physical elements we have to use for our current manufacturing system, and how expanding part of the system, like the you know more more solar and more wind, is going to involve <laughs> using more of the available elements we currently use than we actually have available on the planet or, or easily accessible on the crust. And looking at it, the only, uh, the only other way is to say, well, can we do something else like nuclear? And a lot of my engineer colleagues and who support me on Patreon are, are fans of nuclear. Uh, and, and some of them argue you can scale nuclear up fast enough to, uh, to produce uh, the energy we'd be replacing from, car from carbon-based systems over 10 to 15 years. I, you know, I'm sitting between the two groups. Um, my feeling is like a lot of the arguments about nuclear uh, assume technologies like the thorium-based reactors, for example, that we still haven't built a working prototype of. Um, the, the, the nuclear power, the uranium-based systems we currently have, uh, we could build them, but I, I, I still can't see us avoiding a crunch where we have to reduce our energy consumption. Uh, because I think we're already putting a point where damage to the climate is becoming overwhelming. And the scariest one uh, for some time has been the disappearance of Arctic summer sea ice. Uh, that's bad enough, but it appears on recent data that we're also seeing a slowdown in what's, you, you, you know the term of the AMOC? No. Atlantic, okay, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, uh, also called the Thermohaline Circulation and people colloquially know it as the Gulf Stream. So the, you know, so the Gulf Stream we know brings warm water from the uh, equatorial band of the Atlantic Ocean north along the, past the coast of America onto Europe and back down again as cold water. And it's a circulation system. It actually, the whole circulation links the north to the south pole. Uh, and it's all driven by temperature differences and salinity differences. And recent research is saying that the section which goes in the Atlantic, so the Atlantic up to the uh, um, uh, northern Europe, is slowing down dramatically. And if it does, the heat transfer that that implies, which warms Europe by something of the order of three, three degrees Celsius, could disappear. Now, economists will say, oh, that's good. That's going <laughs> to counteract some global warming. That's going to improve the GDP. I'm not joking. I wish I was. Okay? These idiots, I mean, these overstretched idiots believe they can apply their model to areas that they have no knowledge about whatsoever, which is climatology, you know, the, the yeah. dynamics of the planet. And, and they say, okay, we've got this, we found, it, we, we found a pathetic relationship between GDP and temperature. So if you have an increase in temperature, it'll cause a pathetic change in GDP. And if we go the other way, we'll, get a, we'll slightly re reduce the pathetic increase uh, in temperature and therefore make GDP better. 
So losing AMOC was a good idea. And that's a quote from Richard Toll recently. Um, and also, I'm afraid to say, Gerard Wagner in a recent paper, that, you know, losing AMOC would be a positive for the climate. I mean, get out of here. You guys, you are not planet designers. You are not slutty Bartfast, okay? You didn't design the fjords of Norway, if you know your Douglas Adams. And here you are pretending you can design a planet. Well, you know, get out of this market and show you how you can design the economy in the first place because your models of the economy didn't work to predict the financial prices. How on earth do you think you can predict the consequences of shutting down a, a major section of the Earth's climate on the economy? It, it is Steve, it's Steve, such I think, arrogance. I think the most affoid beetle brocks when it comes to the arrogance. <laughs> um, if, if, if you know your hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. A couple of I, points I wanted to pick, pick out there. I, was, I, I'd, um, I'd say Vogue on destructive fleets, but that's another story. <laughs> Can I just say that I have read that if the Gulf Stream breaks down, the west coast of Scotland will not be habitable. Yeah, and this is, this is like, if you look at the scientists actually saying, I'll just finish on this point and go to the next question. Jim Hansen looked at that in 2016, and he said the breakdown of the AMOC uh, it also occurred during the Eemian period uh, back in you know, the, the paleontological history of the planet. And that generated superstorms, which were throwing you know, boulders, uh, you know, 10 metre high boulders onto 10 metre high cliffs on the coast of Ireland uh, and implies waves of 40 to 60 foot uh, as a common event during storms. Now, if Atlantic storms like that start coming out of this, then, you know, the, the, a couple of waves and it could be good by Holland. And I don't just mean you know, um, a, a couple of hundred people dying. I mean, the whole damn place finding itself a few metres under sea level uh, instantly overnight. And, and this is the sort of thing we're playing with. And you don't toy with forces like this because if we shut down AMOC and find that it was a bad idea, we can't restart it. <laughs> it is a couple of points. It's this um, completely ignoring the idea of a tipping point that um, a lot of economic models just continue that just just assume that you can continue to measure and you can mm. continue to progress and not decide that something so cataclysmic happens that your yeah. model doesn't work. And that's one thing that seems to be missing for me. What, one point on the um, nuclear was, and um, I'll start again, most nuclear power stations are close to the coast. And with any kind of, any kind of global warming and increase in sea level, we don't really want a whole new lot of nuclear power stations right on the areas uh, where yeah. are most likely to have um, geographical issues. So I, I think the, the nuclear debate is really interesting. So uh, you mentioned it there, you know, to, to solve a total climate breakdown, I think we need to fundamentally reshape our economics and our society. And I think that attempting to do that within this kind of neoliberal framework is a bit like flicking a pea at a charging rhino. Would, would you agree? And, and how do we look at this uh, way of managing our economy completely differently so that we do avoid these cl uh, climate crises? Well, I, I don't think we are going to avoid them, unfortunately. I think it's inevitable we're going to strike them. Um, but if we were to do it, then we would have to see ourselves as constrained by the capacity of the biosphere to absorb the energy uh, that we're taking out of the biosphere and, and where we're dumping the waste. And we're not, we've, we've never done that. In fact, the, the neoclassicals have made that a swear word. You're a neo-Malthusian, you know, that sort of thing. Abusing anybody who sees any potential for limits to growth. But as you said, Simon's you know, excellent presentation on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, we are actually at the limits of many of those resources and even trying to scale up you know, solar or wind power is going to exhaust the existing supplies very rapidly. And then you say, well, if you've done that and we, we can't do any more, what do we do? Well, the thing is you consume less. And that, that I think is only possible if we have a sense of rationing of our consumption and you can't ration the poor because the poor are already, um, you know, very close to the, the bread line. And this is why we saw the impact uh, of uh, the diesel tax that uh, Macron brought in under the cover of uh, carbon, you know, a, a, a global warming policy, causing an instant revolt by the working class and, and self-employed in France because they couldn't afford the extra cost of diesel. So the only way we can do the rationing is if the impact of the rationing is opposed on the rich. And that is the last thing we've ever done under neoliberalism. It's always a case of, you know, trickle-down economics, uh, which I say is actually, it's actually a French term. It sounds for trickle-down. 
uh, and that's what we've done. Well, you can't do it anymore. You've got you've got trick the top. You've you've got to make the rich pay for it. And and if you do rationing of carbon, which is one thing I'm I'm working on, uh, then I would like to bring in a system, a, a dual currency system, where everything had a carbon price as well as a money price. We were paid, we received universal carbon credits, effectively on a daily basis, uh, from the uh, central bank, running at the average per person. So everybody gets the average for their country, which means that 95% would get more than they need, more than they use. And the top 5% would need to buy carbon credits off the poor because otherwise they would not be able to maintain their consumption. Something like that, would, which would uh, force the burden of the rationing onto the rich and redistribute in favour of the poor, while it might also reduce our overall consumption. I think something like that is necessary. Uh, there's, there's no way we're going to get there through market systems. Carbon taxing, carbon pricing is not going to do it. All those things are going to fail. And that is one reason that some of the oil lobbyists and coal lobbyists support it, because they know it will never happen. Yeah. It's time for, for radical change. Um, I wanted to ask you something specific about the um, Scottish Government, and I wonder what you felt about this. The, the Scottish Government launched an industry-led strategy that looks to drive profitability, responsibility and sustainable growth. The Scottish Government loves that phrase, sustainable growth. Um, and this is in the food and drink industry. It wants to double the size of the industry to become a 30 billion turnover industry by 2030. So use and that will be all be primarily from exports. So using this as an example, do you think these kind of growth strategies for industries, not just in Scotland but across the globe, can really ever be responsible and or sustainable? No, not we, we could have been responsible, or sustainable fifty years ago, or seventy years ago. Okay, um, it, it would have been feasible to um, imagine that sort of increase. But we are we are now like in compared to the limits to growth, which is the the last intelligent document written um, about about climate and economic dynamics was the limits to growth. It's all been stupid stuff since then by neoclassicals. Uh, but they argued that we could have a sustainable future, uh, but that involved constraints on population, constraints on income distribution, uh, and and a, a rapid shift over to renewable energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, it involved us with tapering. To, so the pressure we put on the planet reached a maximum level and, and didn't therefore degrade the biosphere. Uh, so this whole idea of growth, particularly when you say it's export-driven growth, I mean, every country in the world is trying to achieve export-driven growth. They're all putting in targets that collectively can't be met. Uh, and so it isn't just Scotland wants to you know, double the size of their industry, so does everybody else. Well, you can't all do it. And if you do all try to do it, you can only do it by degrading the planet even faster. So I think those things are delusional. Steve, how about this one from the UK government and the attempt to end the climate crisis? Uh, the UK government recently announced a 15 billion retail bond called the Green Savings Bond. Now, ask savers to give an amount up to 15 billion to the government to then pass on to green projects that they will choose. Now, I've got a whole heap of issues with this, but I wonder what your thoughts were on this type of approach to funding our way to net zero. Well, for a start, uh, if you if the government sells bonds to the non-bank public's public, uh, that is actually can taking money out of the public sector, out of individuals' bank accounts, and handing it over to the government. That is actually reducing the money supply. Now, that is one of the reasons war bonds were sold in the 1940s. It wasn't because the government needed the money to buy the guns. It was because by having the private sector. Uh, use their money to buy bonds rather than goods and services, it reduced the demand for goods and services and left more of the industrial capacity of the country for the war effort. Uh, so if you want to do this, what you should be doing it to is to reduce private consumption. Now, that's not why it's being done. They actually think they're funding these, these uh, green projects. The green projects could be funded by the government running a deficit and issuing bonds to cover it. There's no need for them to do it otherwise. So I think this also falls back into the, the same neoliberal mindset that the government has to borrow off the private sector to, to, to get the money it needs. The reality, and that's why I built my Minsky software to illustrate this stuff very easily, the government deficit, the government is a money creator. And if it needs to uh, create the money necessary to finance enormous amounts of green purchases, then it can create that money by running a deficit that actually 
you know, buys the, the green, green goods off the, off the private sector, you know, enables that construction to be done by the private sector out of profit, uh, it doesn't need to then sell bonds to the private sector to finance it. So, um, again, it's all this wrong-headed thinking. Uh, and we, we think we've got our thinking about money wrong, uh, about government uh, spending wrong, about banks wrong, and about climate wrong. And we're trying to go, go forward with sustainable growth. Well, yeah, good luck. Yeah, I think you, you have to be wary about adjectives in front of the word growth. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's always going to be a concern. The other thing I wanted to bring to attention to our audience as well is that you wrote a paper last year um, about uh, the Lord Houses work. Mm. Um, and I, I was frankly shocked when <laughs> oh, so was I. the details of it. Um, it was it was incredible to me that any grown up, <laughs> never mind someone who's not necessarily got a science background, any grown up could manage to think that you can work inside when the planet's warmed up by six degrees. I know, and this this is what strikes me. I mean, the level of delusion these people have is just breathtaking, and like this is why I think it's insulting to engineers to have this lot regarded as hard nosed thinkers. Bull Pardon me, I almost managed to trigger YouTube's algorithm there. Uh, there, there is, they, they have complete fantasies. So that one of the fantasies is the roof will protect you from climate change. Uh, we'll tell that to the people in Germany whose houses are washed away recently. You know, your roof saved you. You're, you're not really dead. Um, and, 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 and then we're and like, you know, factories with water in them, that's okay. You can use the water for some other purpose. Yeah, sure. Um, it's an incredible unrealism. So first of all, they think that you know having a roof over your head will prevent you suffering from climate change. Then they think the current temperature and, and GDP relationship across the planet can predict the impact of global warming. And just like most recently, this new paper came out by uh, a guy called Dietz and also Gono uh, Wagner, whom I, I had some time for until this paper because he has published stuff criticizing the equilibrium thinking of neoclassical economics. Well, he's now come out with this classic equilibrium thinking paper trying to cover tipping points. And they can, I can now, I'm waiting for some neoclassical to tell me, oh, you say we don't consider climate point tipping points, but look at uh, uh, Dietz and, 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 and Wagner, 2021, that covers tipping points. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I've been reading the, the background paper of this, and this is just new, new information. They value the non-market effects, so things you don't actually pay money for, you know, like... Uh, being alive and, and having a forest to go and visit and, uh, you know, a view that's worth looking at, et cetera, et cetera. They've, they say they value that using another quadratic. And the quadratic has their willingness to pay. What are you willing to pay to preserve the economy, the environment, for your you know, exogenous enjoyment of the, of the environment? Well, they have a, a loss function using a quadratic. And the level at which they say the damages is 100% of GDP get this, it's a 17.68 degrees Celsius increase in temperature. So they're saying 17.68 degrees increase. Now, how the effing did they manage to get this bloody number? Go on inside and check it. And the reason is they're using a quadratic. And they calibrated the quadratic. This is really technical, sophisticated stuff, you know, the sort of stuff that a child who's just learned of what a quadratic is in year five could do. Uh, with a whole range of complicated econometrics built around it. But this is the five-year-old bit. And a five-year-old, I want to, you know, delay going, getting into kindergarten, go back to kindy to learn something, kid. Um, they calibrated this quadratic, so it gave you a 2% loss of uh, GDP at 2.5 degree warming. Now, 2.5 degrees has already passed the 2-degree tipping point that Stefan and co have said in 2018 is probably as far as you'd want to go in Tim Linton. They're saying two and a half will cause a 2% damage to the GDP. Now, to get that, that therefore means that if your coefficient for a quadratic uh, is A times X squared, the A in that case is 0.32%. Okay? And therefore, to get that being equal to 100% of the economy, you need a temperature increase of 17.68 degrees. That's where they got the number from. You think again? It's juvenile. This is and this is the basis of people giving advice to governments about how to cope with climate change. Now, if you asked a scientist 
squat temperature would absolutely guarantee the extinction of all macropods on the planet, they'd probably say about eight or 10 degrees. You know, at that point, probably every, let me say 12, you know, every, every large scale life form would probably be driven extinct by it. And these guys are saying, if, I'll give you actually, how much of the economy have you left at 12 degrees, according to these guys? Uh, let's see, a 12 degree increase, uh, we'd still have 54% of the current economy. Uh, were there any humans on the planet we'd, no, we'd doing anything? <laughs> we'd all be extinct, okay? There'd be no animals, okay? No agriculture worth speaking of. Everything would be on fire or underwater, uh, you know. Uh, but no, the economy would still be 50% there. I mean, I'm laughing at that, you know, because it's so ridiculous. But you're right. Mm. I mean, these, people, these are people who are influencing policymakers. They are. People who are in power and have the levers of power and therefore act on this advice. Uh, you know, I, I was shocked that um, William Nordhaus had advised the IPCC. Yeah, and it is also, I mean, like the government, uh, the main government body is the Interdepartmental inter, uh, Committee on Global Warming and Greenhouse Gases, which is something that Trump pretty much shut down and Biden has revived uh, in 2021. But when you look at what they're using, they're using fund, they're using... Uh, page, they're using dice, they're using all these neoclassical models to predict what the damage is going to be, and then coming up with the social cost of carbon. So the whole thing has been framed the way neoclassical economists think. And an essential part of that is because they believe capitalism can cope with anything because of this back to the ideology they have of this being a perfect utopian system, uh, utopia can't be destroyed, therefore climate change can't be too bad, uh, therefore let's assume 87% of industry will be unaffected by climate change because it happens in carefully controlled environments, otherwise known as indoors or underground. Um, let's assume we can air condition everything and you know, Toll has come out with that one as well. Uh, and, and let's assume that the current temperature in GDP, which is you know, a, a, a trivial changes in GDP from large changes in local temperature, that'll happen in the future as well. It's all fantasy material. And, and when people realize how they have conned themselves and then conned us, I, I hope there'll be a, a, a level of revulsion and outrage that we put up with this garbage. And then at that point, everybody has had this, you know, little um, um, brain tumour, brain virus infected into their brains. We'll get revolted by it. We can get rid of it finally. But we'll be getting rid of it in the context which we may be fighting for the survival of human society. Steve, I wonder if that... Um leads into my next question, which was specific to the IPPC report. Um, mm. And the report said, and I'll quote, knowledge gaps remain in the integrated assessment of the economy-wide costs and benefits of mitigation in line with pathways limiting warming to 1.5%. And I just wondered what you think caused those uh, knowledge gaps? Is it because people are off looking and using models that just have no relation to what's actually likely to happen. Well, yeah, true, because the, the models, the, near, the models the economists have generated, which are where most of these IAMs are done by economists, and even some of the ones done by scientists use the damage figures used by, revealed by economists. They've all been based on this complete fantasy um, that, you know, they're effectively equating the climate to the weather, the simplest mistake you can make, okay? And that's what the economists themselves have done, and it's been ingrained. And then all the... Uh, particularly starting with Nordhaus, like Nordhaus's first sortie into giving an empirical estimate of the impact of three degrees warming, was that a three degree warming would cause a one quarter of one percent fall in GDP compared to what it would be in the absence of warming. So zero degrees from no global warming, uh, GDP would be a hundred in uh, like you know index number value of a hundred in the year twenty one hundred. Uh, so three degrees of warming, it'll be 99.75, okay? Uh, so, and that then set the re reference for all the sorts of numbers these characters have come up ever since then. They're trying, like, it's as though you've thrown a dart and the darts hit the wall and then you've drawn the, you've drawn the bullseye around with the first dart organised. Everybody throws to come close to that hole, only the dartboard's on the other wall, the real dartboard. And, and so we're involved in this mythical uh, campaign to keep uh, limit limit damages on the assumptions that they're trivial, when in fact they're gigantic and they're going to come in through the other wall. 
Yeah, I think um, one of the things that the economic uh, academics have suffered from, um, uh, perhaps self-inflicted as well, is the siloization of their um, of, uh, economic. And it's clear to me that you have not siloed yourself <laughs> with other economists who have gone out into the world and looked at lots of different ideas. And also what really impresses me about you is that you're prepared to say I was wrong. And that's a very scientific approach because we all have to think like that. We're all scrabbling around trying to make the best of the things that we do with the knowledge that we have. And um, I, I would say that, 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 that most people are doing that. Um, but yeah, you're, you're very much, you take a very scientific approach to what you're doing. Um, and what, how did that happen? Good question. Um, I, th I think it's, it's got to be something in my own personality because I remember back at school once, like I, was, I wasn't the ducks of my class. I always came, the best I ever came was second. I had a couple of outrageously intelligent guys in my class. One of them ended up being chief chip designer for Motorola and the, the uh, director of the international, the IEEE, the main engineering unit. The other guy must have had too good of a family life and has never been seen since. But that's the sort of competition I had at school. Um, but anyway, so I was one of the brightest in the class uh, and the teacher asked a question and I said, I don't know, sir. And the teacher didn't hear me. Everyone said, well, you can't say that. You can't say you don't know. I said, I don't know. Um, so I have a capacity to admit what I don't know. Um, whereas a lot of uh, an economics encourages the opposite. I know everything. And, 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 and the people who want to you know, willing to make a set of assumptions to cover holes in their logic. Uh, that's what economics has become dominated by. So I'm just lucky in some ways that I manage to have a personality that sort of defines me as a contrarian in that sense. And in that way, I mean, you know, you look at Tycho Brahe, uh, Galileo, Copernicus, I'm not going to put myself on, the, on those pedestals, but they are people who are able to say, there's got to be something wrong with this. And, you know, and admit that I don't understand this at the moment. Uh, I've got to find out what makes more sense. And, and that is the essence of the scientific method. So in that sense, I'm genuinely much more a scientist than I am an economist. Was there, a, was there a point, Steve, when you thought, hold on a minute, just none of this makes sense in terms of economics yeah. and what we're well, teaching? Was there, a, was there a moment? It was a moment, and I still remember it. I even could tell you the seat I was sitting in the, uh, in the lecture theatre when it happened. Uh, because it was, and this is what stunned, my, the guy who did this is a guy called Frank Stilwell, who's actually, I think he's English, he might be Scottish, I'm not sure. Uh, he came out to Australia in 1971 as a newly minted PhD, I think he was 28 at the time, and took over the first year microeconomics course in the second term. We had a three-term system then. But the first term was very, very dry, straight neoclassical stuff from a guy, we, his, his nickname was Mean Mr. Mustard Man. He wore a mustard suit to every lecture. Um, and then Frank took over and Frank had, he'd gone through the, tra the transition that I hadn't gone through at the time. So I still believed all this stuff. And I was, you know, one of the better students. Uh, I, I was as good as, I, I ranked better in the university than I did in my own school because these two guys at the top were so outrageously bright. But anyway, um, I believed all the stuff. And Frank was teaching uh, the, the micro course in second session, second term, as I said. And he explained what's called the theory of the second best. Now, this is something he may have discovered doing his PhD, and he would have looked at it and gone, this is crazy, this doesn't make sense. So he flipped from being a neoclassical to being a critic. And the theory of the second best is, imagine you are two steps from the perfection that the neoclassical model has. If you take one step towards that, do you make the system better? And the example he used was a, um, a, a labour market where you had a monopoly employer and a monopoly supplier of labour. So you had an employer federation and you had a trade union. And uh, that rather than having the, the supply and demand, you have, you have mar what they call marginal supply product and marginal revenue product to other curves you can derive from that. And they, they intersect at different points. So you have a gap, which the, where you end up in the gap uh, in terms of the wage that's paid depends upon bargaining power. Okay? And that's, that's strict, strict neoclassical straightforward uh, conventional theory. And this is, what if you remove the trade union or you remove the monopolies? Of course, neoclassicals are always pretty good at getting rid of trade unions rather than monopolies. You take the trade union out, what happens? You fall to another position 
which is necessarily has a lower welfare than the one you started in. So by doing one reform, just abolishing trade unions but not monopolies, you make the system categorically worse from a neoclassical point of view. Now, I was, remember sitting in the class when that was said and just being gobsmacked because I'd submitted an essay a short while earlier arguing for the abolition of trade unions and monopolies, you know, straight neoclassical. Well, this is garbage. You can't, you know, if you, if you just admit a bit more of the real world and admit there are trade unions and there are employer associations and you then start from that position and say, well, let's move towards your nirvana, you make things worse. And the only way to avoid that is to do everything, abolish you know, trade unions and monopolies all at once. This is crazy. And so I went down to the textbook. I, I looked at my textbook for any explanation of this, no mention. Uh, and I went down to the university library looking for saying, you know, what's going on here? And I went to the Economic Journal and I found the discussion of the what are called Cambridge controversies and the nature of capital, which were also not turning up my lectures. And Paul Samuelson conceded defeat in that debate. Okay. And this paper, the first paper I read was called A Summing Up by Paul Samuelson, 1966, I think, Economic Journal. And he said, if this, if this conclu- conclusion of this debate um, makes us you know, nostalgic for the old time parables of neoclassical economics, we must realize, we must realize the scholars are not destined to lead an easy life. And, and, and what, that didn't turn up in his textbook. It didn't turn up in the education. I thought, this is mendacious. So from that point on, when I was 18 years old, I was finding holes in the theory and I no longer was, would accept what was in a textbook. And that's what, from that point on, I built my analysis and fundamentally it's come across from the, the mathematics that I learned at the same time by studying pure mathematics at the university. That's an, that's an amazing story that's it's going so far back into your education right at the start. And um, right now, would, would you describe yourself as an mmt I'm. I'm. I support MMT's analysis of money, government money creation, and I've done the mathematics to support that using my Minsky software. Uh, I think MMT is a developing theory, not a complete one. Um, so they haven't incorporated credit yet, and I've done that uh, with my again my Minsky modelling. So I think I can enhance their understanding by including credit in there as well. And you you have to understand money creation. So the whole the, the essential points MMT makes are correct. The deficit creates money. It also creates reserves that are used by the banks to buy the bonds that the government issues to, to cover the deficit. But the government doesn't have to, uh, there's no borrowing going on. The government is actually just converting uh, reserves into bonds. So non-income earning assets for the banking sector into income earning assets for the banking sector. Uh, there's no limit to the capacity to do that. So all that stuff is quite correct. What they haven't yet incorporated is role of credit, and that can be done and that enhances their theories as well. That's what I'm working on for my next book, which is coming out in October. Uh, and, and then uh, they also need a, a stronger analysis of the physical economy. So there, there isn't much in the way the analysis of the physical economy in their theories yet, but that can be provided by what's done by you know, post-Gainesian, Kaliski, and Shraffian economists as well. So we have the tools to put together a cohesive theory. The one thing I disagree with is their theory of international trade, which I think is bollocks. And this is the idea that exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. And I think that actually contradicts their other logic. And uh, I haven't had time or uh, you know, resources to be able to go through and, and prove that. But I think that's actually provably wrong from their own foundation. So um, I, I wouldn't follow their advice in international trade, uh, but I would follow their advice in government deficits. And when we look at it, you therefore have a, a strong argument in favour of much more fiat money creation and much less credit money creation for a sustainable capitalist economy if there ever is such a thing. Um, I, I have to say that that was actually a question asked Warren Mosley, Warren Mosley that Colin oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think he, his explanation was that perhaps he was coming across as a bit flippant about that because, you know, I said to him, obviously, any economy is going to have to think about having some elements of internal resilience. So, mm. you know, on a, on a very fundamental level, um, not... Not that this hasn't happened before, it's happened on these very islands. You would not mm-hmm. export grain to another country when there wasn't enough food for your people to eat. That's a very, very obvious thing that you shouldn't do as a government. It has yeah. happened here and it's happened. The Irish, Irish, the Irish in particular, the Irish potato famine, yeah. And if Ireland being a food exporter during the potato famine. 
you know so mm. it's it, i think i think he understood that that you know that there has to be a certain amount of resilience his his thinking about that right away was um the military in um in america he was think he was thinking mm. about the resources you need for your military whereas for me when i'm thinking about that first thing that i would be thinking about is food <laughs> absolutely and that's going to be much more essential with climate change hits that's one of the reasons i'm in thailand uh i think in terms of food this place is going to suffer less damage than europe um so yeah, and resilience is what we're leaving out of our economic thinking, and that's like the MMT is part of an overall fabric of a sensible description of a capitalist economy. Uh, but you have to include such things as having resilience as well as uh, you know, efficiency, which the neoclassicals focus on and ignore resilience. They think it's the same thing, which it's not. Uh, almost the opposite. Uh, like that, for example, the classic example there is, is, is intensive care beds. Okay? If you're efficient, you only have enough of the current uh, uh, demand plus two or three standard deviations. Along comes a pandemic, you need that plus 100 standard deviations. Well, sorry, you haven't got it. So if you want to be robust, you have to have far more of these beds than you need, far more of the doctors, far more of the nurses, and, and they're in training mode. And then when the crisis hits, they've got the capacity and they've got the skills. Uh, so resilience is the opposite of efficiency in that sense. Uh, and you've got to see the, the, the fabric of the production, the, the, the overall fabric of manufacturing, which is also on the fabric of the, the biosphere, uh, thinking about the interactions between one sector and another, uh, which is the, the sort of work that the Atlas of Economic Complexity does in Harvard and, Mass and MIT. Though that's, that sort of understanding is, is what we need to integrate overall to have a proper Theory. MMT, is, uh, MMT is the shining light in this sense that it's actually got into the public consciousness. And that's the major reason I won't criticise uh, of support 90% of the time because it's a true achievement to get a non-orthodox theory being discussed in the mainstream media. Yeah, yeah it is. And it certainly is making ways. To finish on climate, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts, hopes and expectations were of uh, COP26, which of course takes place in Glasgow this year? I think you're going to have a pretty good sale of malt whiskey. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, a few other parts of the economy might do okay. And you'll have a whole lot of uh, pieces of uh, waving pieces of paper. And you might as well have Chamberlain waving one saying piece in our time. I think. Uh, it, it, International agreement. If you, if you want to, if you want to start with international agreement, you're not going to get anything done. And and, and often this is known by the by the uh, fossil fuel lobby. They're aware of that, so they're happy to have these sorts of things happen because they know you're going to get the lowest common denominator out, if that. Uh, and and consequently, you don't get any real action, any real change. Uh, I I would actually, if you have for anything, I'd, I'd want an enormous storm to hit the place and destroy the hotel they're in and 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 bring the the scale of, of change home to them realize this is serious um so i don't have any hope that they'll do it themselves but i i think circumstance will force us into it but it's more likely to happen on a nation by nation basis than at the international level i think the ipcc report really did seem to send shockwaves across a lot of the organizations populations and hopefully governments stating the difference between the uh, unavoidable 1.5 degrees and the avoidable two degrees increase and, and i hope that that does have a that, that continues a lot of momentum into the into call i would hope so too but i you know i just think people again this it's the whole set question of a paradigm or a mindset people are still so caught up in the whole idea of sustaining growth uh that any anything that you say about the you know the consequences will be reframed in the sense of how we can get sustainable growth out of this rather than oh shit we're going to have to go backwards. I think Kim, you and I are in agreement with that as well. I mean, in terms of in terms of how we address things, it has to be about stopping um, and not just trying to continue on a slightly kind of greener yeah. mode than we've been doing. Well, you know, yeah. I I feel that the global north has 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 plundered the global south. And you know we have we've lived a fat life, you know, uh, off the back of the global south for a long, long time. And it's time for us to start paying back to the global south, who, whose large swathes of the global south we have made uninhabitable. 
um, it's we we really have to be looking after the rest of humanity, and uh, I think that that that's going to involve some sac sacrifice on the global north's part. But I but I, I think that the global north is potentially going to suffer out of this more than the global south for a simple reason that the temperature the trajectory of temperature change is more extreme the further you move from the equator. So like I, I believe me, I know what it means to be overheated here. It's 35 degrees most days in Bang, in Bangkok. Um, that's a winter temperature, um, 37 and more in, in summer. Um, but we're already, we're not, you're not used to that much of an overload, but it's always hot okay? and it's getting hotter. But if you're in part of the world, which has uh, never been hot and suddenly has 49.6 degree temperature, your infrastructure is going to collapse. And we saw that with the little town of Lytton in, in, in Canada, 49.6 degrees Celsius, you know, 120 Fahrenheit, uh, which, which, which uh, you know, one day they gave a heat record, the next day they were wiped out by a wildfire. Now, uh, and then the towns in Germany washed away by those type of floods. Uh, so the, the scale of temperature change is going to be greater in the northern the northern latitudes and we may well find that having made the comfortable assumption that it's going to be the global south that pays that the first major catastrophes may well occur in the in the global north and then that'll be fun to see how you react to that like i said about um, the, the the west coast of scotland would become uninhabitable if, if the ocean mm -hmm. work yeah so well uh, you know we're, we're playing with we're playing with forces we don't understand, and even though you know a left-wing progressive view and thinking it's going to we've got to you know make recompense to the south, we might be asking the south for aid. Yeah, well, well, Steve, you've really helped us understand that a little bit more. But yeah, we have a huge amount of learning still to do, and 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 for me, that real takeaway of um, saying to economists, you know a little bit about this. You don't know a lot about everything else. I think it's a really powerful message to take away when we start to think about climate and the debates we're having around about climate. Um, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'd love to get you back on to talk about one of the other many things you could cover um, perhaps next year. But for the moment, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And as I said, if you want to keep in touch with my views, uh, my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash profstevekane. Most of the posts, there were free access. I, I appreciate the support that I've trying to get the ideas out as well. And Karen's one of my supporters there. And, and you know, you are too, I believe. So uh, <laughs> that's right. And we'll put a link in the comments for, for, for um, being able to look at that. But thanks again, Steve. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. -bye.